Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that he showed towards us and the love they showed toward you by coming and giving up his life as a ransom for our sins. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that we would grow and increase in our understanding of your love towards us in Christ Jesus and help us to be not only individuals, but a church that loves uh, you in response, in return. God, um, use this church, continue to mold this church through the preaching of your word. Make us more of the instrument that you wish us to be, uh, to reach not only our city, but our state and our, our nation and our world with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for making it all possible by sending us your son. Thank you for your word now. Thank you for your spirit that will lead us into your truths. Teach us, we pray. Give us ears to hear. Give us a willing heart to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your Bibles and look with me to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. be reading the scriptures and win the sermon this morning. Well, you'll notice that we're not in our normal series through the Gospel of Luke today, but we're looking at one of its parallel Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew. In light of our past year with COVID-19, as well as the, its impact on our church ministry, this church, if, you'll, if you haven't noticed, like many others, has operated much differently from where we were a year ago. Of course, it's, it's all because of the Lord. The Lord's in control of it all. And in his providence, he's used this past year to, to change this church, to change San Francisco Bible Church. Compared to a year ago, we, we now have both an online service and an outdoor service, two services that we didn't even ever have. We have ongoing ministry uh, meetings through, through Google Meet, through Zoom on a weekly basis. We've had people leave they moved on to other cities and other places. And we've had some of you people come and join us during this pandemic. And we're glad that you, the Lord has brought you here. We're thankful that the Lord is, has brought you here. And hope we get to meet you and get to know you better uh, when we can meet again. The whole experience of ministry, though, during Shelter in Place has been sort of compared to a, a church plant situation. Everything's new. Everything has to be kind of thought up from scratch. And that's kind of how we feel, though it's technically not the same, but we are, in many ways, oftentimes, figuring out things anew, looking for new ways to solve the, the problems and the challenges of, of ministry in a COVID world. We're asking ourselves often in our various meetings, what are the essential functions of ministry? What's essential for a church? And then what forms might those functions take in the context of our, uh, of our world? I think of Esther Bible in a very positive way as if Esther Bible is basically being almost relaunched as a church, being reinvigorated, you know. So this morning, as we often do throughout, uh, throughout the past few years, we regularly begin with a brief series on our mission, vision, values. 
And so I want to redo a, a series from back from 2015. It was one of the earliest series I, I preached on Mission Vision Values. But I want to entitle it Introducing SF Bible. Because I know it's almost like SF Bible is new, and I want to introduce it to you again. It's a, an opportunity for us as we look to 2021 to renew our mission, our vision, and our values, and our purpose for being here. For those of you who are new, this series will give you a better understanding of what this church strives to be, what we hope to be as a church, what we desire to be, what God wants us to be. And for those of you who are the veterans of this church, long-time attenders and faithful members, this series will remind you of what are the essentials of ministry that we strive for. And even as the, the forms, that is, the programs of ministry change, they have to in, in this world, we'll see that the forms are, can change as long as we maintain the very essential functions for which they exist. So each week for the next three weeks, I'm going to be introducing what SF Bible is. And this week, we're going to consider that our Lord calls SF Bible Church to be a church that loves. We need to be a church that loves. And I, I, when I first arrived at this church, I, I remember how often I, I felt, and, and I just was really uh, enamored and, and grew to love this church because this church was a very loving church. It was just full of these families that just were here with their, uh, uh, with their young ones, and they, were, they just loved one another, and they loved Cindy and me, and we loved them in return. Of course, as the church grows larger, we kind of we sort of lost that family feeling. And I sometimes I wonder if SF still has, if the Bible still has that that sense of love, like a family loves one another. It's easy to lose it as we become this organization, a larger church body. But nevertheless, God wants us to be a church that loves. And so we're going to look this morning at this passage in Matthew twenty-two, verse thirty-four to forty. It's a, it's a passage that is known as the Great Commandment. We've all heard of the Great Commission. This is often known as the, the Great Commandment. And it's the Great Commandment to love God and to love our neighbors. I think if you're a Christian for any amount of years, you're familiar already where, where we're headed. But ironically, as we look at this passage, this passage on loving God, loving our neighbors, this passage falls in a section that is actually where there's not much love going on. In fact, Jesus is surrounded by people who hate him who want to kill him, destroy him. In fact, it's a, this is a parallel of where we are, we are at currently in our series through Luke. Jesus is here at his final week of ministry on earth. He's teaching in the Jerusalem, in the temple. And in, in this particular chapter, Matthew 22, the religious leaders are all plotting together to entrap him, to discredit him, to discredit him, and, and eventually hand him over to the Roman authorities to have him killed. Verse 34 to 40 is the third attempt of his enemies to put Jesus to the test in this chapter. And as we learned from our study in Luke 20, 20 to 47 last time, whenever Jesus is challenged with some hot topic or hypothetical question, Jesus doesn't, doesn't just answer the question, scratch their itch. Jesus answers in such a way as to bring out the essential truths that these, he's, his listeners needed to hear. That what's really at stake is not their questions, but at their relationship with God and relation with his son. And this essential truth that we learn here today is, even though it comes out as a, as a theological, theological question, 
Jesus boils it down to, well, is that the necessity of, a, of those who follow God, those who worship God, to be those who love, who love him and love their neighbors. As we examine Jesus' answer, we learn that love is essential in the life and ministry of Christ's church. And so as an outline today, it's going to be a two-point outline. You already know what the points are going to be, but simply it's going to be two great commands that guide SF Bible to be a church that loves. SF Bible is a church that loves. That's what we are to be. That's who we've been, and that's what we want to continue to be, especially in this world of COVID-19, especially in this world of chaos and with a political change. We want to stand out as a light, a beacon of light that is, a, is known to be a church that loves. A church that loves, yes, both sides' political spectrums. A church that loves all sorts of people, different people. But a church that loves fellow Christians and a church that loves even non-Christians. A church that loves our friends. A church that loves our enemies. A church that loves God. So let's look at these two great commands. The first great command that we find here in verse 34 to 38 is to love the Lord your God. A church that loves is a church that loves the Lord your God. Verse 34 to 35, give us the setting. Let me read in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Jesus, you see here, faced opposition from both sides of the religious establishment. The, the Pharisees, the conservatives on the right, and the Sadducees, the, the liberals on the left. There were two opposite ends of theological, political spectrums of Israel, but they were united in a desire to rid themselves of Jesus. And the Pharisees tried to get Jesus in trouble with the Sadducees, as well as the Romans, by asking about that question about the paying the tax to Caesar or not. Then the Sadducees came, and they tried to get Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees with a question about marriage and the resurrection. Now the Pharisees come again with one more test. In verse 35, look at the test there. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. The Pharisees sent one of their own, one of their lawyers, an experts in the law. That is the law of Moses. They're scribes. And they, he came to pose a question to Jesus. And his question here is aimed not because he was a sincere seeker, but he wanted to test the Lord. Like the previous delegation, this man was seeking to, to lead Jesus into giving an answer that would raise opposition against him, that would discredit him, that would dis- reveal him to be the, a fraud in some way. And the lawyer decided to challenge Jesus with a question that was much debated during the days that day by the various scribes and rabbis. It was a question that had no consensus. One of those questions that nobody had the, a, the, a, a real clear answer on. Get, whatever answer you give, someone, a whole mess of people, everybody else is going to disagree with you. So you're going to have 10 different people, you have 20 different answers, sort of like that. It was a no-win question, really, because everybody had their own answer. What's the question? Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Rabbis in those days had identified 613 separate commandments found in the, in the books of Moses. Of those, 365 were negative commands, do not. And 248 were positive commands, so they counted them even. They even listed them, categorized them. And it was natural with so many commandments that they began to prioritize them in, in terms of importance. Uh, the, and eventually, 
people began seeking one commandment that was the most important. What's the number one commandment? What's the, number, the top commandment to observe, to obey? 20 years earlier, a rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, when challenged by a Gentile, at least, uh, at least the story goes, when the Gentiles challenged him, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg, Rabbi Hillel answered, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. That was not a bad answer. It was a negative form of what we come to know as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Another rabbi answered with uh, the question with Proverbs 3, 6. Acknowledge the Lord in all, in all your ways. Acknowledge the Lord, basically. But how would Jesus answer this challenging question? He answers in verse 37 to 38. Here's his answer, verse 37 38. What is the great commandment of Allah? What's the chief commandment? What's the number one commandment? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus quotes an answer here that every faithful Israelite would have been familiar with. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. This was no obscure commandment. This was taken directly from that section of the law known as the great Shema. Shema meaning the Hebrew word for hear. The command, hear, O Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 4. I'll read it, I'll give it to you in full. In fully. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. The Shema was recited twice a day by every, uh, every morning and evening by every faithful and devout Jew. The first part of the Shema forms the basis for the commandment which follows, right? Every Israelite was reminded of two things about the Lord God. First of all, the Lord is our God. The Lord is not just somebody else's God, but He's our personal God. He's, he's the one who made a covenant with our fathers. He's, he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for Israel's fathers. <laughs> He made a promise to be their God, and he would always be their God. He made a covenant, a promise, and that promise was basically a covenant to love them always. That's why he's their God. It's, he's their God because he made a promise to love them, to bless them, to seek their good, and not to forsake them. Second, they remember in this creation month that the Lord is one. Not only that the Lord is their God who loves them, but the Lord is one, that there's only one God. He's the one and true and living God. All the other gods of this world are false. And because of this, they were commanded to respond, therefore, in verse 5, that you shall love the Lord your God, the God who is your God, the Lord who is the true and living God. No other God like this God has chosen to love you. That's why you need to love him. And since the Lord is their God and the only true God, they were to respond in loving him. And this love, is, this love for God is so important that God instructs the Israelites to, as, to, to teach it to their children, to teach their children to love God. That's why children's ministry is so important in the Bible. Because in children's ministry, we're coming alongside parents families to help them to teach our children to love God. 
Do you love God? If you love God, you want to tell others, and you especially want your children to love God. And that's why our children's ministry, we're thankful for our children's ministry, our lower division CEO, just praying through some, uh, just some developments in areas. Just ask you as a church to pray for our lower division. We're just thankful for so many of the faithful workers in that ministry. But what does love for God look like? What does it mean to, to love the Lord our God? First of all, it says, love the Lord your God. As Jesus puts it here in our text, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All three taken together really emphasize the, the totality of our being, the whole being of man. If you look at each phrase separately, they might, there's a slightly different emphases or aspects of men that we could maybe could do, we could draw out here. The heart is often, th- we, when Hebrew talks of the heart, it really might think of something that's equated to what we think of as, as our mind. Our, our, the heart is the mission control center of man. We equate it with, it's where our wills and our thought is. With, to love God with all our soul, the word soul is a reference to basically something that we might equate with, with our heart, where one's emotions uh, and activity might take place. And then the mind here is, uh, it's actually equivalent to the Hebrew word for, for might. You think, well, it's mind and might got to do with each other. But loving God with all their might begins with a determination of the mind to a mental effort, a, a diligent devotion and commitment. You must put your mind to it if you're going to do it with all your might. So to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind is to love God volitionally, a decision. You're to love God vehemently, with passion, with emotions, and you're to do so, love God vigorously, with your strength, with a, with a commitment of mind, a, a, a diligence. Love for God is, is not to be a half-hearted activity. You can't just love God. Oh, I love God on Sundays. It's a wholehearted. It's a all twenty four seven kind of thing. It's our. It's like it's consu- It should consume our lives. The lo- our love for God. The word that Jesus used here for love is the Greek v- verb agapao. We're made for our. We're going to get the noun agape from it. It refers to that unconditional commitment to sacrificially seek the good of another. It's a love, of course, that we learn from God himself. I think many of us are familiar with John 3.16. But its parallel in 1 John 4.9 is this. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. See, we learn here in 1 John 4.9 that God's love, first of all, is visible. It was manifested in us. It was something that could be observed by the people. God's love is also a love that's sacrificial. God gave, gave not just anything he could spare, but he gave a, a great sacrifice. He gave the most precious person in his life. That is his son. He gave his only son. God's love, we see also in 1 John 4, 9, is beneficial. It's for a purpose. It's for our good so that we might live through him, through Jesus. And while God does that for us in the giving of his son, that's the kind of love that God shows, then we question, how then do we show love for God? Right? It's one thing to, to say or, or to sing that we love God, right? But if we love as he does, then our love for God ought to be a visible love. It ought to be seen in how we relate to him. It should ought to be able to be somehow manifest in our lives. 
Our love for God ought to be sacrificial as well. It ought to, it, uh, even though we might recognize we can never outgive God, but somehow in our lives, how we live, we're, we're giving of ourselves back to the Lord, whether of our time, or our energies, our finances. We ought to give not just what we can spare, but we ought to give what is a sacrifice. Lastly, our love for God ought to be a beneficial kind of love. That's for God's benefit. Now, of course, God doesn't need anything from us. But we can benefit him, we can bless him by how? By seeking to glorify him, to magnify his name. How we live, how we conduct ourselves can glorify and honor and, re- and reflect him. Of course, John summarized all of this in, in a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 3 of 1 John. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, as, as a church, we love God with all our heart, by keeping his commandments. Not just the ones we like, but all of them. Loving God means worshiping him, praying, listening to him, serving him. But loving God also means following other commandments, like submitting to government authorities, honoring your father and mother, working hard in your workplace, Loving God is seen in all areas of our lives. And thus it is the great and foremost commandment. And God desires that SF Bible be a church that loves. And it begins with you and me and you and I loving the Lord our God. As you examine your own relationship with God, I'm going to ask you, how is your love for God? If I could actually complete this sentence. For this is the love of God that I blank. How do you feel that blank? For this is the love of God. This is my love for God that I, what? What, what do you, what's, how do you answer that? For this is the love of God that I worship him every day. For this is the love of God that I seek to listen to his word. For this is the love of God that I love my spouse for this is the love of God that I live for him. Or, you know, whatever it is, I, somebody, how are you my answer? You can list many things, I'm sure. But if you're kind of just struggling even to list one or two things, then, then I encourage you to talk to God about it first. Talk to him, pray and ask God for grace to love him more because maybe you're, you're not. But then I would encourage you to also talk to a fellow Christian, talk to another brother or sister that they might give you their own observations of your life. Because... The love of God is supposed to be, our love for God is supposed to be somehow visible, manifest, it's supposed to be observable in some way. And perhaps by talking to another Christian, they might be able to point it out if it is existent, or maybe they might confirm what we, if the, the absence that we might be wrestling with. But all, all of us, every one of us here, myself included, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always love God as we ought, right? Sometimes we seek our own glory rather than his glory. Sometimes we give what we can spare rather than what is a sacrifice. Sometimes we say we love him, but no one can tell from watching our lives and how we relate with him. Now, likely, it's, some might say that their love for God is, is a personal, it's a private matter. It's, it's just between them and God. No one else needs to know. However, Jesus teaches us otherwise in the second great command that the love for God is not just a private, personal matter. 
it's reflected in the second great command. And the second great command of a church that loves is the love for your neighbor as yourself. And the second point is to love your neighbor as yourself. We see this in verses 39 to 40 of our text. You'll just kind of notice that as Jesus answers this, Jesus doesn't stop with the command, answering the, man's, the, the scribe's command or the scribe's question by saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, period. Jesus continues and expands on the answer. He elaborates on the answer because why? Because he knows the heart of man. If he gives the greatest command, then what often happens with sinful, lazy people is that they will then say, well, as long as I keep the big command, the number one command, I can neglect all the other commands of God. I know we wouldn't say that, but in practice, that's how people are, can be. It's, it's just that sinful nature. Well, it's like, God knows, at least I'm doing this one, and the others, no, it's okay. But Jesus extends and elaborates his answer in verse 39 by giving us what's known as the second greatest commandment. The answer is elaborated in verse 39. He said this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love it, here is the same, the same verb as the first commandment, but the, the, what changes here is the object of one's love. Now, in addition to loving God, now the, the followers of God, worshipers of God, are to love your neighbor. Your neighbor, if you recall, as Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is just anybody that is God brings into your path, including even those whom you would consider enemies. It's to be a similar kind of love, and it's that it's to be visible, uh, sacrificial, beneficial. And Jesus quotes here the second great commandment. It's actually a quote from the Old Testament, right? Because the second greatest commandment is drawn out of here, Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. And if you had time to look through the verses that precede Leviticus 19.18, you'd see that from verse 9 all the way to verse 18, God gives example after example of what it looks like to love one's neighbor. He commands the Israelites, for instance, to leave some of the harvest gleanings for the needy and the stranger in verse 9 to 10. He encourages them to, commands them to not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another in verse 11. To not be a false witness in verse 12. To not oppress or rob one's neighbor in verse 13. To not harm the deaf or blind in verse 14. To not be partial in judgment in verse 15. And to not slander nor harm a neighbor in verse 16. And then look at verse 17, 18. I'll, I'll read that for us. You shall not, God says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall, you may, <laughs> that's, that's just a great command even for today, right? How many, how many people are hating their fellow countrymen in their hearts right now because of political divide? He said, but anyways, we continue. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God's moral law reflected in, these, in this code here uh, has much application today even as uh, it, did, it did back then. The Israelites were taught and called to, to not to, to hate their fellow uh, Israelites. They're not to be angry at them, to take vengeance, to hold grudges against them. So we, re we so readily do that, don't we? 
but instead we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. This phrase, as, our, as yourself, has often been misinterpreted by modern in our modern psychological era. It's basically meaning you got to learn to love yourself first before you can love others. That's not, but that's wrong. Jesus' idea here, Jesus' words, as your, implies that as human beings, we naturally love ourselves. We naturally look out for ourselves. This principle is assumed in, place in Ephesians 5, 28, 29, right? Love your wife, husbands, love your wives as, as your own bodies. Because he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. See, love of ourselves is seen in how we naturally take care of our own bodies. We look out for ourselves. We, we, take care, we look out for our well-being. When you're hungry, you, you feed yourself, right? That's a love for yourself. When you're thirsty, you get yourself a drink. That's love for yourself. When you're sick, you take medicine or you, or you get some rest or you see a doctor. That's love for yourself because you love yourselves. You look out and you take care of yourself. You look out for your own interests. You don't, you don't just simply talk about all oh, those things. You actually do something about it. See, the second greatest commandment tells us to treat our neighbors with the same care and concern that we would treat ourselves. It's, to, it's like the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or in this case, to do unto others as you do to yourself. In John's epistle, um, he makes it clear that you can't say that you, you can't make, that you can't be a Christian, say that you love God, but also then to go on and not love your brother or sister in Christ. Look at these verses with me. First John 2, 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And then First John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. See, love, one cannot simply say we love God whom, whom is invisible when we don't, when we fail to love the very brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of God that are visible right before us. Uh, There's an illustration that I've used in the past. That's that's just a kind of a old kind of standby illustration, and it's an illustration of a boiler room. I know we don't have boiler rooms much these days, but back in the old school days, it'd be these big rooms where you have big boilers where water would be heated, and the water you would generate heat out of those things for electricity or for or for heating. But you couldn't look at how much water was inside that inside the boiler itself. It's just like an enclosed metal thing. But you could see how much water is in there by looking, running up to this, alongside it, there will be this tiny glass tube called it, some, served as a gauge. And how much, in a sense, water, or if sometimes it was a dial, eventually water is in that tube would indicate how much water was in the, in the boiler. So the tube's half full, the boiler's half full. If the tube is empty, the boiler's empty. Okay? So, uh, such. so how do you know you love God? You can look at the gauge. And the gauge is the love that you have for your brother and sister. The love that you have for your neighbors. Your love for your neighbors, your love for your fellow brothers and sisters, your love for your enemies even, is a good measure of your love for God. And as we begin this year, I want us as a church, I want you and I to consider how we are loving our neighbors. Especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. 
it's a, it's a whole new world. We're kind of all separated. We're kind of by ourselves in some ways. But I know that there's still the, that God wants us to love one another and look for ways to show love towards each other. Or perhaps even if there's someone in this church that you're not getting along with, God wants you to correct that. God wants you to, to, to restore right relationship with that brother. Sister, to, to give up that grudge or bitterness or anger that you may be holding against that person. To let it go. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your neighbors next door. God calls you to love. Now, as far as practical aspects of what love looks like, none, no greater list than probably 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 8. I don't want to just read these for you. Just listen to the, these are the different ways that we show love. And if you want to know if you're loving your neighbors, just go through this list and ask yourself, am I, am I conducting myself towards others in this way? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. Love is patient. As a parent, I just stop right there. I'm like, wow, I got a lot of areas growing my love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it is not jealous. Love does not brag and it's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. How many times do we, do we seek our own? Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Let go of those grudges. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love bears with with others, even when they sin against us. Love endures through all sorts of trials, through the challenge of living in this COVID-19 world even. This is how we show God's love. This is, should reflect. This should be reflected in how we relate to the people that God places in our lives, the neighbors in our lives, the neighbors in our home, the neighbors in our school, the neighbors at our workplace, the neighbors in our community, the neighbors all around us. In verse forty, Jesus explains the significance then of adding the second greatest commandment to his answer. The answer is explained in verse forty. He says, "On these two commandments." depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that everything in the scriptures can be categorized under these two commandments, to love God, to love your neighbors yourself. And the implication is that the rest of scriptures describe and amplify or can be categorized in these two commands. And this is, we know, is even reflected in the Ten Commandments. It has been pointed out that the first commandment summarizes uh, the first half, uh, the, the first commandment, the great commandment, the great command, excuse me, the greatest commandment summarizes the first half of the Ten Commandments, while the second greatest commandment summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments. Your relation with God is reflected in how you love Him and how you love your neighbor. These two commands taken together summarize all the commands of God and you cannot separate them. You cannot say it's just, as long as I love God, that's all that matters. No, you also have to love your neighbor. You can't just say, as long as I'm just loving my neighbors, it's it's okay what I do. I don't have to love God in those ways. 
Jesus challenged the Pharisees with his answer. In claiming to love God, that the Pharisees did, by the observance of, of all their you know, legalistic traditions, they had, in effect, neglected the commands of God to love their neighbors. In fact, they were doing so right now. In their belief that they loved God, they were trying to harm their neighbor, Jesus Christ, but they wanted to kill him. But there was other examples. The practice of Korban was one of them. Mark 7, 11 was one where people would say something is devoted to the Lord and because it's, it's devoted to the Lord, I love for him. Well, then I can't use it then to help uh, my parents who, are, who may be in need. Neglecting parents, and Jesus condemned that. Let's not be people who are so caught up, focused on loving God that we neglect loving our neighbors. That's often what happens. That's usually what happens. Many Christians are devoted to church activities, attending worship, fellowship, Bible studies, discipleships, etc. But at home, they're absent. They don't honor their parents. They don't love their spouses. They don't love their children, if they're even there. If I went to your home, or if I went to your school, went to your workplace, can your family, your, your co-workers, your classmates, or even your neighbors, can they, if I ask them, can they tell how much you love God by how much you love them? Can they tell that? Is it reflected? You know, we can all go out and do a lot of things for the Lord and go out and witness to everyone in the world and pray five times a day. You can fast regularly. You can give all your money to the church even. But unless you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not loving the Lord your God as you ought. We're not. So how do we manifest the love for God? By loving your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment. And they must go hand in hand. Jesus answers the scribes and the, and the religious leaders. The desire just to have one command they can just kind of focus on. He said, no. The one and the second go hand in hand. And they, in effect, summarize all the commands of God. You're not just called just to observe one command. You are called to observe all the commandments of God. But the reality is that all of us fall short of keeping God's commands. All of us stand before him, really, as, as sinners. We don't love God as we ought. We don't love our neighbors as we ought, as ourselves. But that is why God sent us his son. God sent his son to pay for our sins. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God loved us. God loved the world <clears throat> that he gave his son. He sent his son to come to this world to take on the form of man so that he might die for sinners like us. Not that we were seeking him. He sought us. He initiated it. So that by Christ's death on the cross, all who believe and put their trust in him, who confess him as Lord, will have their sins forgiven. And this is God's love. That he did everything that was necessary for our salvation, our forgiveness. When we did everything push him away. In fact, it was our sins that caused his son to die. Our response ought to be a thankful response of praise and love. As we look forward to 
2021, our ministries are changing. They're changing. They're going to change in various forms. But I hope that our function as followers of Jesus Christ remains the same. Our function as a church is to be a church that loves, that loves the Lord our God with all our being, with all our heart, and loves our neighbors as ourselves. Not just our neighbors sitting here with us, next to us, but the neighbors around our, in our community, in our city. I'll leave you with three questions just kind of to reflect upon as we uh, may have opportunity to discuss these with others uh, later this evening or this week. Number one, how are you loving the Lord your God? How are you loving your Lord your God with all your heart, with soul, and mind? Number two, how are you loving your neighbor as yourself? How are you doing in that area? Is there anybody, is there a neighbor that you could say is, that maybe you're not loving as you ought? And number three, in what areas then, as you think about that, will you depend upon Christ to help you love more? I hope that's a blessing to you and, may, if, you know, and as you reflect upon God's truths. And we truly, uh, we simply want to be a church that offers up our life as an act of love for him. So let's, uh, let's close with a, a final song and then we'll close in prayer.